You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, J.T. Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm really excited to have Lee Child and Andrew Child on the show with me. We are talking about the brand new Jack Reacher book. This one is called Better Off Dead, and uh, so excited to have the two authors here uh, on the show with us today. Welcome, Lee and Andrew. Thank you. Thank you for having us. I'm excited to have it's you. It's a pleasure um, to be here. Well, thank you as, as well, Andrew. Um, a- Andrew was actually on the show a couple of years ago uh, talking about his book uh, at the time that he had out uh, under his other writer name, Andrew Grant. And so excited to have you back, Andrew, and uh, and excited to have Lee with us as well. But we begin each show with the same question, and I thought this would be a fun question to pitch out to you guys. Um, Lee, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? Oh, that's a great question, because I'm not like the usual writer, you know, who claims to have composition books full of five-page novels from the age of seven. Uh, I'm not like that guy at all. Harlan Coben has a really funny riff about the writers who decided they want to be writers while they're still fetuses. And, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm not the, I'm not like that at all. Um, you know, sometimes I say I, I never wanted to be a writer. Uh, I still don't want to be a writer. All I want to be is an entertainer. The idea that doesn't matter what it is. I wish it could be music. I wish it, I was a great actor. I wish I was a stand-up comedian. Whatever. I just want to give people a good time for a couple of hours or a couple of days. And I was just left in a, in a situation 25 years ago where I had very little option in that field except to become a writer, uh, which sounds kind of glib, but. I'd been a gigantic reader all my life, and strangely, I never really connected the two things. I loved books, lived for books, but never really had any sensation of anybody writing them or publishing them. I just thought they were there. And um, so when I lost my last job and needed something else to do, I thought, yeah, you know, books are created, they're written, you've read tens of thousands, try it. And so I did. So I'm an accidental writer, rather than <laughs> a purposeful one. This is, this is not a lifelong dream. And I think in a way that helps, you know, I'm not invested yeah. in the so called externalities of being a writer. You know, I do not have a black polo neck, uh, that I wear with a black leather jacket and smoke gold wires <laughs> and wear dark glasses. You know, I'm not that, I, I never had that thing in my mind. So for me, it's it's an accidental but very happy discovery. But you did work in the entertainment industry, didn't you, just behind the scenes? Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've done nothing else my whole life other than uh, serve an audience in one way or another. And yeah, those years... Zero percent of them were directly transferable, but a hundred percent of them were transferable in the sense of learning that this is not about you. It is about the audience, first, second, and third. Now, Andrew, from from our previous conversation, if I remember right, uh, you worked in theater and uh, and and worked in 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 that end of entertainment. Is that right? That is right. Yeah. When um, what happened to me was I went I, again, like Lee, you know, I never had this childhood dream of being a writer. Um, in fact, it's a funny thing because we so in, in society, we so kind of identify ourselves by our jobs, don't we? Right. And I still um, just yesterday I was I had to complete some form or something. And there was a question on there saying occupation. And even now, after 15 years, it's still kind of a surprise <laughs> to me to have to write, you know, novelist. You know, it, it still seems like a weird thing. Um, 
so for me, it was always about the storytelling. When I was a little kid, I loved nothing more than telling stories. Anything that happened to me, I always just sort of in my internalized it as ammunition for storytelling, you know, fodder for storytelling. And so um, theater turned out to be, for me, really a brilliant way to tell stories because it's so, you know, all stories are artificial in nature, really, even though they pretend, you know, you, you've got this weird um, contrast in that what you're doing is completely made up and yet what you want it to be like is as if it's real so it's a very strange thing and so theatre was great because in a way it was real because the people were actually standing in front of you they were acting out the action they were speaking the lines that you heard rather than you reading them so I loved theatre from a storytelling point of view um, and when I left university with some friends set up a theatre company and we ran that for a couple of years and it was absolutely fantastic the only thing was um, it's extremely difficult to make a living in the theatre, particularly when you were as self-indulgent as we were, because we only produced our own material. So we had an unheard of theatre company trying to attract people to come to plays that they'd never heard of in venues they'd never heard of. So, you know, we were pretty much guaranteed to be broke. So, um, you know, I switched from that into a real job in, just in order to, uh, to you know, pay off all my debts. And that stuck, you know, I wound up stuck in that job for a long time. And when I was in that job, you know, I would read a lot, couldn't go to the theatre much because I was on the road all the time. So I just read more. And um, one day I was reading a book, it, one of those books that starts out like the perfect thriller, you know, where you you would you would you don't eat you don't drink if you're on a bus you don't get off you know you you don't go to work you will do anything to find out what happens at the end of this book but when i got to the end it was terrible and i remember thinking well why on earth did the author do that why didn't he do this why didn't he exploit this opportunity that it set up why didn't he go with it you know and that was like an itch then and i had to scratch that itch i had to find out if i could do it so for me you know somebody once said that the two saddest words in the English language are what if. And I just didn't want to get to the end of my career. You know, I was making a good living. I had a decent job, a decent house, decent car, all that stuff. And I was I, I was in the end prepared to put all that on the line because I didn't want to get to the end of my career and then say, well, that was fine. But what if what if I tried writing that book? So uh, it was it was an itch that I just had to scratch. So Andrew and, and Lee both. Um, I find it interesting that uh, Andrew, you're the younger brother of the family. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, there are four of us all together, and I'm. Yeah. And and uh, both of you uh, wound up going to work in in entertainment uh, before you were both writers. Um, was was this a a family trait uh, that was passed down? Was there ever encouragement from your parents, or <laughs> why do you think that is? <laughs> Well, hollow laugh from both of us there because uh, absolutely not. And, um, uh, you know, we it's difficult to communicate. You know, here we are in America now in 2021, but we grew up in a, even though Andrew's much younger than me, the, the, the atmosphere was still the same, essentially. We grew up in post-war Europe with very grim and repressive parents who were already at that point 50 years out of date. And they had a, a kind of, I don't know what, vague bourgeois dream that we would become <laughs> uh, civil servants or, you know, minor politicians, something in it, something largely in the public good, maybe doctors, maybe solicitors or something like that. And uh, entertainment was the furthest thing. There was a kind of Puritan or rather Calvinist atmosphere where the biggest danger in life was anything that might bring joy or happiness. And so, you know, we this was completely against uh, our, our background and upbringing. And, um, you know, the look on my parents' face when I did it, and then when Andrew went into the theater, it was like, they were like, oh my God, here we go again. You know, we've got another rubbish son in the rackety world of show business. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was, uh, it was exactly like that. Uh, and I'm not saying it was done out of malice or anything like that. It was just, they were so narrowly fixed in what they thought was right and so narrowly fixed about the dour realities of life. I remember, uh, you know, when I did become a writer, I'd lost my job, 
I decided to become a writer. And then a month or so later, for some reason, my parents dropped by to visit. And I said to my dad, by the way, I lost my job. And he said, well, what are you going to do now? And I said, I'm writing a thriller. And he said, I bet you 10,000 to one it doesn't work. (laughs) Thanks, Dad. (laughs) Yeah, you know, it was very much a a true statement. You know, this is a numbers-based guy. He was a sort of accountant, basically like a forensic accountant, worked for the British equivalent of the IRS. It was all fact for him, numbers, logic, uh, reality. And he was probably accurate. It probably was 10,000 to one, but it's not the sort of thing to say if you're trying to be encouraging. So, yeah, it was like, (laughs) yeah, thanks, Steph. What about you, Andrew? Do you, you, uh, what do you you think about the the two brothers that that become novelists that, that both went to work in the entertainment industry? Well, you know, first of all, everything Lee just said about the parents was absolutely correct. I mean, there was, I can't in my entire life remember ever a single word of encouragement, anything yet. I mean, in a way, it kind of prepares you nicely for all the one-star reviews on Amazon, you know, because, you know, I I just became accustomed at a very young age to whatever I did and however hard I worked. It was never... um, it was never acceptable. It was never good enough. So, you know, that was that was kind of, um, you know, part of the course. So that hardened us up. But then um, I guess in a way, I mean, first of all, as you can see with what we're doing right now, you know, we, we're similar people. We have a similar outlook. If you look at our bookshelves, they've got very, very similar books on them. We like the same music. We like the same kinds of cars. We go to the same kind of places. So we are very, very similar. So when, um, you know, when I had that moment with that that novel, you know, that set me off on this path, um, you know, Lee was already established. So, um, you know, you think about that 10,000 to one business, you know, I guess in my mind, I kind of narrowed those odds because I thought, well, you know, I could, I guess you could have interpreted it differently. You could have said if it's 10,000 to one for one brother to make it, it must be a million to one for both. But <laughs> I chose to look at it the other way and say, you know, well, you know, if, if he can do it, maybe I can do it, you know. So um, it, it smoothed the path a little that way, I guess, in my mind, at least. Sure. Well, and and both of you went on to create uh, great series characters, you know, Jack Reacher, of course. Um that Paul McGrath um, that that you created, uh, Andrew, the fantastic series character. Um, when you were getting started, and and Lee was already established, and Jack Reacher had kind of become a cultural phenomenon, and in, in a lot of ways, um, was it? I, I know you you thinking about those odds that you were just talking talking about if one brother's 10,000 to one, two must be a million to one. Um, was there some encouragement, you know, knowing that you did have a brother that, that did succeed? Did, did you ever call Lee and, and, you know, ask advice or just ask for encouragement or, you know, were, were there just phone conversations that just bolstered your, uh, your attitude, you know, sort of knowing someone that close to you that had made it, um, had to, had to be incredible. Well, it was, but I mean, it, it really cut both ways because in terms of how it helped, um, you know, I like to visualize things. So I remember having discussions with him where he kind of explained how the industry worked, you know, and I, I wanted to, I visualized the path I was on as a bit like um, a hurdle race. You know, I was at the starting line, or at least even trying to get to the starting line. And I could see the finishing line way off in the distance with a set of hurdles. And because he had already trod that course, he could say to me, yeah, these are what the hurdles are. This is what you have to do. First, you do this. Second, you do that. Third, you do, you know. So I, it gave me, you know, the kind of person I am, I like to understand the journey that I'm embarking on. So I could look at it and I could say, yeah, I, I know I know the ride I'm buying the ticket for. I, I can understand what's in store for me. No idea if I'll get to the end, but I know what I have to do. So that was really, really helpful. But then the thing that was less helpful is is my own sort of stupid personality because I'm so ridiculously sort of stubborn and independent. Even if he had offered to do everything for me, I would have refused because I just I just had this this ridiculous built-in obsession about doing everything for myself. So I I, I you know I, I probably turned down opportunities for help that that a sensible person would have would have accepted. And then finally, when um, 
when the book was done and it was time to, to try to sell it, you know, I was actually going to use a different pen name at the time to try to put an even further barrier between us. Didn't approach Lee's agent, didn't approach his publisher. You know, I, I wanted to I didn't want anybody to know. I knew it would come out eventually, but I, at the time when I started, when I got that first contract, I was determined that it would be on my own merits and that no one would even know about the connection. And, um, you know, fortunately that happened. Then my agent, when I told her about my pen name, she said, well, your pen name's stupid. You should just go with your real name. So I did. <laughs> and I felt like, you know, in a way, the pen name was like a kind of hire car in a way. It was just a vehicle to get me from one place to the other. You know, the starting point being this guy who had been locked in the telecoms industry for so many years, having to come up with the self-belief that you could reinvent and you could become this, this, this person that seemed impossibly far away in this role that was impossibly far away. So it was very useful from that point of view. Um, but then once, you know, I got to the end and fortunately somebody wanted to publish the first book then yeah I felt yeah you know it kind of did its job I don't need it anymore so I did I did switch back to um to the way that it had been so um you know and then from there on in you know there was a certain amount you know in the early years anyway you know if we were at Bouchercon together or something you'd hear you know mutterings behind you know behind uh, people people's sort of you know hands you know saying well you know how how hard can it be if Lee Child's your brother <laughs> you know I'd say well actually it's harder because then people already have a set of expectations the bar is pretty high and you have to uh, you have to try to get as close as you can. I didn't mind when they asked that question. What really bothered me is like at least 10 times now, people have said, oh, I see you writing with your son. And <laughs> <laughs> that that hurts a little bit. Uh, Lee, what did you think when, when Andrew first called you or, or you know told you in, in, in conversation that he was, was going to write a novel? What, what was your first reaction? Well, it, it was extremely positive. I mean, I think everybody should write a novel. Andrew was in exactly the same spot that I was, that he'd been reading all his life. And, and if, you, if you arrive around the age of, let's say, 40, and you've been reading all your life, then you've, you've got two choices. Either you carry on with that for the rest of your life, which is fantastic, and uh, you get great joy out of that, or you think, all right, now my gas tank is full. Maybe I could try it as well. So when he said he was going to do it, I was very happy, very positive about it. Uh, simultaneously, a little bit worried about it because uh, it is difficult. You know, it's very hard to get the break. And there's nothing anybody can do about it. There's nothing, there's no serious help that I could have given him. There are kind of shortcuts. There are certainly explanations of what a certain thing implies, uh, contractual things that I've been fallen victim to before I can tell him to avoid. Those small details, sure, you can explain those. But other than that, 100% of it is, is the book any good? And so if he was not capable of writing a good book, it would have failed anyway. As a matter of fact, it was a, a really good book, in which case then, yeah, he's at the starting line with a really good book. Uh, but there's very little anybody else can do about it. And so he, uh, his progress was all his, absolutely nothing to do with me. And as a reader and, and an observer, a third party, I was loving it. And that was my absolute one inhibition about asking him to... Uh, continue to reach a series, that it would damage my reader's enjoyment of his series. I've I, I, I loved them all, actually, but the Paul McGrath, the janitor series, I had to... Fantastic. It, it is. It's fantastic. And I had to ask him, would you put this on the back burner to do the Reacher stuff? And I honestly thought he would say no because it was, it was great stuff and he was really into it and it was interesting and there was more coming. Uh, so I thought he would say no. And in a way, I wanted him to say no because I want the Paul McGrath books. But <laughs> he said yes. And so, uh, you know, I'm sincerely hoping that uh, there will be more Paul McGrath. But at the moment, it's, it's all, all Reacher. And so in a way... Uh, the Reacher readers, he's doing them a favor. You know, Reacher is continuing at the expense of somebody else. Dabble is a proud sponsor of Author Stories. 
Dabble is an easy-to-use cloud-based writing tool that gives writers a way to organize, plot, and create amazing stories wherever they are. Write in our desktop app on your Mac or Windows computer, tablet, or mobile device. Dabble syncs your latest version with the cloud on all your devices. Write anywhere and anytime inspiration strikes. We got you. Dabble is my preferred writing tool, and I think it will be yours as well. Visit DabbleWriter.com for your free trial. You have an amazing story idea. You execute the writing and editing flawlessly, and now the only thing missing are readers. We can help you go from author to author superhero with Story Origin. Story Origin is a one-stop shop for marketing tools with a community of amazing authors working together to find reviewers, build mailing lists, increase sales, and collect feedback from beta readers. Everything an author needs, all in one place from providing review copies or beta copies, reader magnets to ensure you stay connected with readers, easily distribute audio promo codes, universal retail links to send readers directly to the proper point of purchase, or provide direct download links for members of your mailing list. Story Origin has all the tools you need in one easy-to-use site. Use the promo code ASP21 at checkout when subscribing to the yearly plan, and you will get 10% off your first year. This code will expire December 31st, so hurry over and subscribe now. StoryOriginApp.com Lee, um, your story of beginning that first Jack Reacher novel and, um, you know, losing your job and, you know, saying, oh, I'm going to do this. This is my this is going to kind of be my make it or break it moment. And uh, you getting uh, paper and pencil and and sitting down to to start that uh, that first book um, a few years ago, Andy Martin shadowed you uh, as you. Uh, wrote your 20th novel, and uh, he wrote a book uh, about it, Reacher Said Nothing. Uh, fantastic book. It was a really interesting look uh, at an outsider's perspective of your writing process. And and at that point, after, you know, 20 novels, you had kind of developed uh, some, some habits, some uh, almost superstitions about beginning a new book. And September 1st began a new book, and, and he, he went into um, – I'm trying to remember. It's been a little bit since I read it, but um, I, I think you you had very specific ways of how you had your computer set up and uh, a solid color background. I, I think you know it's just kind of these r- rituals, um, so to speak, that that we go through when when starting a new project. What well, now that uh, the two of you are working together, um, what is your new project? What are your new project rituals? What what things do you um, do to kick off the the creative process for a new book? Really pretty much the same as as it always was. Um, I, I, I always started on September the 1st because that was the historic anniversary of starting the first book. So that was partly ritual and comfort and superstition to an extent, but it was also partly practical. If you're going to publish a book a year, you've got to write a book a year. And if you're going to do that, you better get on with it. You know, you better start and and get it finished. And so to give my year a shape that was productive, uh, you know, this is not a hobby. It is not just doing it for fun. This is real life. And so you need a certain amount of discipline imposed, which you do to yourself. And then the little rituals and superstitions become a kind of warm-up routine, you know, like when you go to the ball game and you see them, the uh, the players stretching on the field and so on before the game, the, the little rituals act like that. They get you into it and then off you go for the day's work. So I, w- I would defend them all as, as, as kind of practical and useful uh, uh, prompts to, to get on with the work. How about you, Andrew? How do you feel about the beginnings of a project? Yeah, very much the same. I mean, one, I guess the one thing that's different for me is that when um, I started any of the books that I wrote on my own, I didn't have a set day of the year that, that, that I would begin. Um, I had this feeling in my mind that was 
you know, I'd be I'd be mulling over the ideas for the book. You know, they they would be kind of coalescing at the back of my mind. And you know, sometimes when it's time for birds to migrate, you know, you see a whole bunch of them on the on the telegraph wires, and they just seem to be sitting around. And then for for no apparent reason, it's just they just know it's time to go, and they all take off and fly away. It's kind of like that for me with my own books, where I would think, okay, um, I'm, I know I'm getting close to being ready to start, but not quite yet. And then one day I would just feel the same as those birds getting ready to fly. It would be like, right, today's the day. Today is the day we're starting. Um, that's different now because, you know, we've maintained that tradition of starting on the 1st of September. But what is the same is that there is that really sort of exactly as Lee described that that way that you go through, you you know, you open. I mean, if people, different people use different programs and whatever, but, you know, you open up your word processor, you you create a new document, you give it a name, you know, you decide on all those little personal details, like what size margins do you like, what what spacing do you like, um, all of those kind of things. And yeah, again, you know, I like to, I'm, I'm, I don't want to be distracted by anything. So I have my computer set up so that, you, you know, you're in, at one point, I don't know if it still does, but Word used to call it authoring mode, which I used to think was hilarious. <laughs> you know, when you've just got the page on the screen and then just a black panel down either side, that's that's my favorite because then there's nothing to distract you, nothing to um, annoy you. Um, you know, you've got to turn off all the grammar stuff because otherwise it's constantly nagging you for broken sentences and all of that kind of stuff that, um, you know, I don't, I don't like it when people tell me what to do so when the computer tries to tell me what to do that's <laughs> that's that's a really bad start so you know get everything set up the way you want and then it just smooths the path it means that you're ready to go and every day when uh, you know there's plenty of things that are going to get in your way and make you think oh well you know maybe I shouldn't work today because you know I stubbed my toe or you know or my CDs aren't in alphabetical order or whatever it might be you know you've got to have as few of those obstacles as possible so that you can get yourself in that chair and get on with the job because like Lee says it's not a hobby you've got to do it or else you don't eat. Right Lee there there's a, a couple of things about your writing process that have kind of become myth uh, in the writing community one is that you are um, a complete pantser, um, that you have no idea what's going to happen in the story, and you just start writing into the dark. And um, the uh, the book we, we mentioned a, a, a moment ago by Andy Martin uh, it kind of really looks into, the, into that uh, aspect of your writing process. The other uh, sort of myth that's that's built up is that you write one draft. And and that's it. And you give editors um, a little bit of leeway, but not much. <laughs> um, well, now that you're working with Andrew, um, do you, how how do you feel about those kind of hard and fast rules that that you set for yourself? Do you do you approach the story creation in the same way? Yeah, we do. I mean, I do certainly because. Uh, you know, the, those things are absolutely true. I have no plan, no outline. I literally do not know what is going to happen more than a couple of lines ahead. Um, but that is, uh, and I only do one draft. That is true. But both of those things sound a bit glib. They sound a bit superficial. But, and th <laughs> there's actually more depth behind them. Because really, nobody writes without an outline. You, you always have a, a kind of... Uh, consensus outline in your head of what a novel is, what a genre novel is, what a thriller is. Um, and, you know, I don't forget, I've been in entertainment now uh, more than 45 years, uh, right. I think I think it is. And so you, you get a sort of rhythm baked into your DNA about pace, about suspense, about cliffhangers, and so on. It becomes almost automatic. So my method is less glib than it sounds. What I'm really doing is abandoning myself to my subconscious, which has been trained by tens of thousands of books and movies and TV shows, um, you know, poems, songs, anything that gives you a sense of momentum and tension and suspense. Um, it's all in there. So you can, it's like falling backward onto a trampoline with your eyes closed. Uh, feels a bit weird, but you know you're going to be all right. And so uh, it, it's not as perilous as it sounds, as a matter of fact. <laughs> and then the one draft thing, I do it with such intensity. And of course, 
um, when you start in the morning, part of the ritual Andrew was talking about for me is about rereading what I did yesterday. Smooth it out, reread it, change a couple of words maybe, and then launch onward into that day's work. And so by the end of the draft, it's been churned over and over, like right. uh, you know, two steps forward, one step back, over and over and over on a daily basis until it's finished. And therefore, it's not a question of dashing it off and going back to the beginning and discovering what you wrote. I'm checking that daily as I go along so that by the time it's finished, it is finished. And I've gone through this, this strange mental process whereby uh, I'm obviously a normal person. I'm not, I'm not crazy or anything, but when I'm doing it, I believe that it's true. It is the only way to achieve the, the, the authenticity you need and, and the emotional investment that you need. The only way to do that is to let, let half of your brain assume that this is really happening. And so that at the end of the draft, my editor, you know, in the old days, the editors would say, yeah, this is great, but wouldn't it be better if this happened after that? And I say, yeah, probably, but it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and to go back and change that seems to me dissonest, you know, on some, right. kind, on some kind of artistic level, it seems to compromise the the integrity of the work if you go back and patch up things that were awkward or difficult well too bad you know there's awkwardness and difficulty in life reacher had to deal with it that's the end of it right andrew um knowing your brother and and knowing his creative process uh you know when when he offered this uh role to you to to come along and and co-create uh, jack reacher with him um did did anything about the way Lee works um, uh, intimidate you, scare you, or did, did you wonder, you know, how am I going to merge the way I do things with the way Lee does things? You know, did were there any of those questions? Absolutely, there were. Yeah, um, because you know it was a huge undertaking and a huge responsibility. You know, there are goodness knows how many Reacher fans out there, millions all over the world, and. Um, you know, I'm one of them. I was the first one. So I, I know what it is like to have that, in, you know, that amazing anticipation waiting for the new Reacher. And the last thing either of us would want to do would be disappoint anybody. So I knew it was a huge responsibility to to produce the Reacher books. So then you've got to look into well, what, what goes into producing them. And one of them, one of the things was to kind of adopt or at least you know adapt my my methods to make them more in line with with lee's because you know i want the outcome you know if if you had a situation where somebody went to the bookstore to buy the new reacher and for some reason there was only one comment one um copy left and the cover had been torn off anything that indicated who had written it had been had been removed all you had was the pages with the story in i would want somebody to buy that book take it home read it and not know there was a difference just say wow you know 28 29 30 books in they're just as good as they ever were you know it's not about the name on the cover it's about the character so how do you produce that character in a consistent and, and authentic way and so i feel like Trying to do everything in exactly the same way is an important um, is an important factor, and one of the things that I think you sense in a Reacher book, if you look at the first twenty four anyway, that that Lee wrote on his own, you know, there's a real sense of sort of confidence to the writing, and I think some of that comes from the fact that writing without an outline is a bit like walking on a tightrope with no safety net you know you right. just have to get you have to have confidence that you're going to get to the other side you can't think to yourself well it doesn't matter if i fall off because there's a safety net down there that's going to catch me and it kind of breeds that that confidence into the pros and um you know that's something that, that that i've tried very hard to to replicate you know not just the working method but the um, the way that the the prose works, the way that it grabs you at the beginning of the book and doesn't let you go till the end. So you know there was there were an awful lot of questions in my mind, and I was conscious of an awful lot of things I was going to have to um, either change or or, or improve to to uh, to make the grade. So you know it was very nerve wracking indeed the first time through. But then you know and then you know even having read Andy Martin's book, you know, even having talked to Lee so many times over the years about writing, you know, 
there's always a little part of you that thinks, well, could it really be true? You know, does he does he perhaps secretly <laughs> sketch some out? You know, and what I found out was no, absolutely not. And it, when we were writing the Sentinel, time after time, you know, we'd finish a, a passage, would would decide whether that we were happy, and I would say, all right, so what's next? And he'd say, well, I don't know. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, a couple of times I actually kind of secretly snuck off and tried to um, to plot out a little bit into the future. And what I discovered was it was a total waste of time, a complete waste of time. I had stuff that I think on its own was actually really good, but it just didn't fit the story because, you know, you can't tell Reacher where to go. He goes where he wants and you just have to kind of follow along and uh, and write it down. So, you know, it was it, that was fascinating. And that really helped me when it came time for writing Better Off Dead because I understood then. I knew the reality. I knew how it worked. And we could just launch in and, and you know, exactly. That it's, it's simultaneously very frightening launching in with no idea where the story is going but also extremely exhilarating because you get places that i'm sure you never would have got otherwise if you'd done it in some kind of <clears throat> clinical um pre-planned way that then locks you into a particular direction speaking of uh reacher does what reacher wants to do um lee you have uh, kind of uh well, well first off readers a lot of times will read a story and try to figure out um, where the writer has written himself into the story, you know, that that there's a protagonist in the story that's really a reflection of what the writer, um, you know, wants the, the reader to think about them or, or maybe people use, uh, you know, characters to as their own therapy uh, in, in, in a way. Uh, but Lee, you have kind of famously said that, uh, that, that Reacher, you hold Reacher at arm's length and, and you don't let him get too close to you and you don't let yourself bleed into the story. Um, and, and you've, you know, been misquoted and, uh, you know, time and again, and, um, you know, by saying that you hate Reacher and, you know, all of that sort of thing. Um, but um, in, in, in writing a, a a character like Reacher that you do hold at arm's length, um, does it become easier um, for for Andrew to pick up the writing of this story because it's not so wrapped up in you? Like Reacher is actually a third entity in this relationship between Lee and Andrew and and the Jack Reacher books. There there's a there's a third person here. Does that does having that relationship with Reacher up to this point? Does that make it easier, uh, Andrew, to to pick up uh, and and write the stories? I think it probably must. And and uh, you know, there's there's two parts behind this answer. One is that I think yes, inevitably, any writer puts puts in uh, themselves into the character. Uh, you know, all fiction is essentially autobiographical in a way. Because you've got a character who 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 feels in a certain way, who values certain things. That is your proposition, and you can absolutely do the reverse of yourself. Every, you do that every time because that's the bad guy. But your core values as a person inevitably find their way into the hero. So to to an extent, yeah, Reacher is autobiographical which is not a problem because Andrew's uh, autobiography would be at least similar to mine. So at least he's, he knows, he understands what Reacher is, is doing and thinking. But the thing about keeping him at arm's length is, was really an antidote to what I've observed as a reader in, in lots of other long-running series, that there's a terrible danger that at some point the author falls in love with the character yeah. and that and that just destroys any kind of critical distance any kind of uh, rigor or plausibility about it you can see it stretching back to the days of dorothy sayers for instance who started writing about peter whimsey and the first many books were great, but then she fell in love with the guy. And the, the latter books are so sugary that you could catch diabetes just by reading them. And that has happened so many times that I said to myself, don't, don't do that. You know, don't fall in love with the reacher. Keep him at arm's length. Keep some kind of hostile distance between the author and the character. 
And that has worked out so far. Reacher is not a goody-goody. He's not too perfect. He's not sugary. He's a nasty guy in a lot of ways. And uh, that authenticity and plausibility has served the series well. But it's also, I hope, helping Andrew now because Reacher is. He's like, a, he's like an extra brother to us. He's, he, he's not mine. He, he's an independent character that I know well and Andrew knows well. Um, but it, if Andrew's thinking about Reacher, he's not thinking about me. He's thinking about this third party. Yeah, and you know, there's an analogy to what what Lee was saying earlier about you know, you know the preparation for being a writer is being a reader. You know, and talking about by the time you get to your late 30s, early 40s, how you've read hopefully sufficient number of books that your tank is full and you're ready to go as a writer. It's kind of like, but the thing is, with that process, is it's unconscious. You don't realize you're doing it. You know, you don't sit down as a kid or as a young adult thinking, well, I'm going to read these books so that in a certain number of years time, I'll have read enough to be a writer. You just you just read them because you love them. And it was the same with Reacher. You know, we I would love the books. And then when we got together, we would always be talking about Reacher. We'd be we'd be kind of daydreaming together, saying, oh, well, what would Reacher do about this? What would Reacher do about that? And again, without realizing it at the time, it was a brilliant kind of training ground ready for when, you know, it's time for, for me to put Reacher's stories down on paper as well, you know? So um, without, without appreciating what I was doing, I was almost like I was on a kind of 25 year scholarship or apprenticeship or whatever you know learning how to how to be the the next custodian of Reacher's stories with last year's book the sentinel uh being the first book that you collaborated on um now following up this year with better off dead what did you learn from writing that first book that now when when you started this book and 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 probably I'm assuming that you guys are probably are, are working on the third book um, that you collaborated on by this point. Um, but what did you learn in that first collaboration that starting the second one, uh, you knew what to expect or, or had worked out, uh, you know, the, the duties between you or how you were going to work together? What I guess what I'm asking is what happened in the second book that, the process of the first book enabled you to to know what to expect i think the main thing i learned is that it's going to be okay uh you know <laughs> I, I i can trust him and rely on him to get to to get it done i mean that was the the huge takeaway from the first one which was slightly different in as much as we had no kind of outline for the first one but we had a purpose behind the sentinel which was to make reacher come face to face with this, with a plot that was that was modern, uh, that was up to date uh, technologically, because one of the things that was worrying me was uh, how how far behind Reacher was falling in terms of relationship to living in in the real world today. Uh, very you know very old fashioned luddite uh, Reacher is. Now I find that readers like it actually if the hero is a bit behind the curve technologically because it makes the reader feel secure about their own relationship with technology. But Risha was grotesquely out of date. Um, and it was charming 10, 15 years ago, maybe where Risha would express puzzlement about texting or something. But it actually, <laughs> it now, you know, 15 years later, it's not so charming, it's a bit ridiculous. So we had a purpose for the Sentinel, which was to bring Risha face to face with a technological plot that would uh, allow him in the reader's mind to, to move into the current day a little bit more. Whereas with Better Off Dead, we had uh, no preconception about what it needed to be. We thought we'd, we'd, we'd done that job. That is now achieved. Now we've got total freedom just to do what we want. But I, reading between the lines, maybe Andrew learned something from the first one because what happened with the second one was that he wrote the first chapter in secret. And um, <laughs> I was sitting right here actually uh, playing some music and... Um, my phone dinged with the email and it emailed me this, uh, the opening chapter of, of Better Off Dead. And uh, it was fantastic. I mean, it was literally, uh, and this was obviously for me the 26th time that uh, I'd be, uh, been putting Richard through his paces. And 
for a first chapter after 26 first chapters to be that excited about it i was thrilled and so i that was the starting point this secretly written first chapter so maybe we should ask him now live on the podcast why why did you do it secretly be what was so awful about the way we did the sentinel well you know it's it's, again it's interesting because i guess it would come across as as having been done in secret because you didn't know that i was doing it but i wasn't I, i never sort of set out to um you know, to to conceal it or to or to try to get it done in the dark. It was just that I was really excited about it. I had an idea that I thought would be really fun. And so um, one day, you know, without having to worry about outlines and figuring out what happens 500 pages in the future, I thought, oh, I'll just I'll just sit down at the computer and I'll play with this. And so um, it just was one of those times, you know, when you're writing, sometimes it's really hard and you can't get the next words, but sometimes they they flow. And this time it just flowed. So um, without you know i did it kind of just because i was excited to to do it and then when when it, when it was working and when it when it did format the whole of that first chapter i was then excited to see what you thought about it so um i i i, I see how it would appear from your point of view but it wasn't kind of designed to be you know a clandestine thing it was just once it started you know i i started with a little tiny tiny snowflake at the top of the hill and gave it a little push and before i knew it i had this enormous um, snowball at the bottom that uh, that uh, i was really excited about so you know funny how it happened but i think it worked out for the best it really did it's a great chapter and i and it it really gave me encouragement that yeah if you want if you want to ask me what i've learned from this collaboration it is it is fine. It is going to work. And how rare is that? You know, you have an idea and it actually works. So uh, I'm thrilled with it. So what can you tell us about the new book? Um, what what does Jack Reacher find? Well, first off, where in the world is Jack Reacher? One one thing that I love about a, a new Jack Reacher book is opening it up to, to figure out where where Reacher is is this time and uh, you know because he he's such a wanderer and and y- half of the fun is just you know figuring out where he's wound up and and what he's gonna what wrong is gonna confront him um so what what can readers expect from the new book well reacher reacher's kind of making his way gradually west he's come up with the with a somewhat whimsical idea that he wants to go to san francisco so he's he's heading west and he's made it as far as he's wound up actually right on the border he's in arizona and he's right on the border between uh arizona and mexico literally back against the the border fence when the book opens so so, I'm, i'm sorry go ahead no, so what happens is he, the book opens with this um, this enormous, mis- ugly-looking, mysterious stranger standing by the border fence, waiting for a clandestine meeting that's been set up with with one person. But when a car pulls up to uh, at, the, at the appointed time, it, instead of one person getting out, four people get out. None of them being the one he was supposed to be meeting. These four people decide that they're gonna take you know they're going to capture this enormous guy and drag him off somewhere and of course the things don't work out too well for him you know the four people don't come out of the encounter very well but right at the end when it looks like this enormous stranger has uh, has has prevailed another person steps out of some shadows and shoots him in the chest and the next scene is the local morgue where the, the this enormous body is on the slab and they're looking through his possessions and he, he doesn't actually have very many he just has a folding toothbrush some cash an atm card and an expired passport and the name in the passport reads jack non reacher lee when when you read when you read that first chapter and and you uh read what andrew had come up with did uh what did that do for for your imagination and and where you could see reacher well it was hysterical because uh you know in the first chapter he's not named reacher he's just this tall huge uh guy and of course I'm looking at it purely as a reader. I, I'm I'm in the same boat 
at that point as millions of other Reacher readers. So I'm, I'm reading it and thinking, well, obviously this has got to be Reacher. And then he gets shot and killed. And I'm thinking, what? And then I'm thinking, he hasn't actually shot and killed him. There's no way. So how are we going to get out of this? What is really behind it? And it was like an explosion in my head. You know, there are literally a dozen different ways we could have opened the next chapter and uh, virtually an infinite series of possibilities we could have gone down. And so as a reader, I was kind of terrified by that first chapter. But as a writer, I was thinking, wow, this is uh, this is the gift that is going to keep on giving throughout this whole book. And um, I think if I'd done that first chapter and I, I I've, I've done a couple of good first chapters over the previous 24 books, but this this was way up there. And um, I was secretly at the bottom of my mind. My ultimate worry about this whole thing is that he's going to be better at it than I was. And I was thinking, oh, my God, he is better. <laughs> what are some of the challenges uh, to to sharing uh, the work? Uh, and, you know, Andrew, you, you talked earlier about uh, the process of setting up a, a Word document. Do, do you guys still um, are you collaborating in Word and are you just emailing a document back and forth to each other? Or what, what are some of the logistical challenges of sharing the workload? Well, I, I don't really, I don't really, we haven't really encountered any any logistical challenges because kind of the master document lives on my computer so that we can keep keep everything straight. But then when we work on stuff, we email that back and forth until we're happy with it. And then when we have a, a part that we're, you know, when, when the next section is, is um, you know, we're both, we're both happy, then I just copy that into the master document and it, it just grows incrementally from there until, um, until it's finished. So, um, yeah, the logistics are pretty straightforward, honestly. And the pandemic has helped us in a, in a weird way <laughs> because I think we had both expected that we would be sitting nose to nose across the same desk thrashing it out. And the, the the problem with that would have been, I can identify the problem with that, that you introduce an idea, you preface it, you explain it, you massage it, you say, I think we should do this because then it will suggest this other thing and it will bring in that other reference. And and then you reveal it and the the other person has got a preconception by then that this is going to work. But because of the pandemic, we took we took it as seriously as we could, and we worked separately and remotely. And all we had were the words on a screen, email back and forth, no explanation, no justification, no persuasion, no discussion. It was just the words. And they either worked or they didn't work. And in the same way that they would either work or not work for the reader. And I think it was a huge benefit. And even after, if ever, the pandemic business dies down, we should maybe keep on working like this because it is it is about the words. That's and that's all we'll ever have. And so I think that it's very valuable. Lee, I know that that you're uh, taking some of this uh, free time to to work on the TV show that's coming from Amazon and and some other things. But what what's occupying most of your creative time these days? Uh, consuming. I mean, the only thing <laughs> that I ever disliked about being a writer was that the hours you spend writing your own stuff are hours that you can't spend reading other people's stuff. And it cannot be emphasized enough that all writers are primarily readers. Yeah. So what, I, what I'm doing is uh, catching up on, uh, on everything that I haven't had time to, to keep abreast with, not just fiction and my friends and, and other thriller writers, but everything, nonfiction, all kinds of things. I'm just back to where I was as a seven-year-old, just utterly entranced lying on a sofa with a book. Andrew, what does the future of Jack Reacher look like? Um, well, you know, I'm just enjoying so much just getting to tell his story. So, you know, I hope that there's a very long future for Jack Reacher. <laughs> and, um, you know, I certainly don't envisage any massive changes. You know, Reacher's not about to, you know, start becoming a kind of tree-hugging vegan or anything. You know, he's going to essentially <laughs> continue in his, in his same vein. 
um, and you know keep doing the same things and for as long as as long as we as long as readers want to read about him love it well the brand new book is called better off dead and when you're hearing this episode it's available everywhere today we're going to put uh, a link to it in the show notes where you can grab it in hardcover or kindle edition or audiobook um i'm a huge fan of the reacher audiobooks these days and uh so we'll put links to all of those in the show notes um you guys have a website for Jack Reacher, uh, and I love the way that that you do this. Is you know a lot of authors will have a website um, with the with the URL that's their name, and and Jack Reacher actually has his own website, doesn't he? And that is how I always wanted it. I never wanted anybody to go into the bookstore and ask for Better Off Dead or ask for the new Lee Child. I want people to go into the bookstore and say, have you got the new Jack Reacher yet? Uh, because that's what it's all about. It's about the character. That's what stories have always been about. Authors are not important. Publishers are certainly not important. It's the character and the relationship with the reader. And so if it is, if everything is about Jack Reacher, that's exactly what I wanted it to be. Not about me, not about Andrew. It's about the character. Thanks, Thanks Hank. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks, Hank. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Now stay tuned for an audiobook excerpt from Richard Gleaves, the Jason Crane series. Jason and Joey took their food trays outside and sat high above the parking lot on the secluded stairwell that had become their lunchtime hangout, picking at their Thanksgiving specials and swapping updates. They were almost finished eating before Jason managed to screw up the courage to say what he needed to. I want to apologize. Joey looked puzzled. What the hell for? Because your coma was my fault. Yours? The horseman beamed me. You didn't. Hey, want to see something cool? Look what I found on my phone. Joey produced the device, hit a few buttons, and swiped his finger. An orange circle hung in a field of black, overexposed, something that had been moving fast when the flash caught it. I was trying to get his picture, right? Like an idiot? Well, I didn't get him, but that is the pumpkin he threw at me. Jason stared at the blurry orange shape for a long time. Cool. Cool? Can you imagine if we actually got a picture of the headless horseman? We'd be famous by now. He pocketed the phone. Hey, do you want the rest of this turkey? It looks like bologna. Tastes like bologna, too. He speared the slice anyway. Look, this is going to sound weird, but... I think I made you a target. What do you mean? I made you a target by... By telling you about my gift. It's some sort of magical rule. If we reveal ourselves to a normal person, whoever we tell becomes a target for ghosts. And usually, they die. And you told me anyway? No, I'd already told you. There was no way to untell you. Don't be mad. It all worked out, right? Right? Joey's expression had darkened. Give me a second here. And there's a bright side. What bright side? Now you'll have a gift, too. Me? That's what your coma was. Some kind of transition. You got targeted, but you survived. You'll be a founder now, like Ichabod. You'll pass your gift to your kids like he passed his to me. Joey looked worried. What kind of gift will I get? People get gifts that complement their natural abilities. It could be anything. Anything? So, I could read minds? I guess. Turn purple and levitate? Probably not. Something that expresses the essential you. Then I'll have an actor's gift. I want... What's an actor's gift? Jason shrugged. Super narcissism? Shut up. So you're not mad? Joey was shaking with excitement. Mad? This is the coolest thing ever! We'll be like the dynamic duo, fighting supernatural foes up and down the eastern seaboard. Jason laughed, feeling epic relief. I thought you'd be pissed. Nah. What's a little coma between friends? He took a bite out of a nutter butter, grinning madly. I'm going to be a superhero. But you can't tell anyone. Why not? Weren't you listening? Everyone we tell dies. 
you can't talk about your gift to anybody. But if they were targeted and lived, we could have our own X-Men. Yeah, or all your friends could die. Do you want to risk that? No, I guess not. But I don't do closets very well, you know? I came out at conception. Promise to keep it to yourself. Yeah, yeah. Joey shifted sideways and walked his sneakers up the brick. So, the essential me. Ooh, I know what gift I'll get. I'll get a singer's gift. What's a singer's gift? Jason shrugged. Superhuman drug tolerance? Shut up! <laughs>